0: This podcast proudly brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. Old school is back in season. Experience superior shells when you go with Boss Shot Shells. Their premium non-toxic bismuth shells knock birds down so hard that the old guys might just think they're shooting lead again. Make sure you check out Boss Shot Shells for your next purchase of shotgun shells. what's going on folks thanks for joining me on another episode of the duck gun podcast on this week's episode we're joined by jason wagner from cyan bottoms and if you guys haven't tuned into our previous podcast with jason wagner sand bottoms is one of the most scenic and historic locations in all of north america to waterfowl hunt shine bottoms is the largest interior wetland in north america So without further ado, a quick word from our partners, and we'll jump right into the podcast.
1: Hi, this is Killian Bailey from Bailey's Game Calls. I'm here to tell you about our duck, goose, and wood duck calls. We use 3D printing technology to revolutionize the industry. This new technology allows us to create calls with the same sound as wood, acrylic, or anything in between that's at a fraction of the price. Make sure to check out baileysgamecalls.com for your next game call.
0: Next, we'd like to give a big thanks to our partners at White Rock Decoys. Be a nomad and get out further with their system of windsocks and silhouettes. Use discount code DUCK GUN POD at checkout for 10% off your next order at WhiteRockDecoys.com. We'd also like to give a big thanks to our partners over at ShotCam. Now, I've been using ShotCam for the last year, and I can tell you right now it's a great tool for improving your shooting, whether you're doing clays or live birds or just want to see some cool footage of your shots after the fact make sure to check out shotcam.com and use discount code DuckGun at checkout for $40 off what's going on folks i'm jordan from DuckGun chronicles got my co-host alongside me elliot graybeard from freelance duck and our guest guest for tonight is jason wagner how you doing jason
1: doing
2: good doing good uh, we certainly appreciate you coming back on with us. I know, you know, you manage Cheyenne Bottoms, which is dear to my heart and everyone in the state of Kansas. And uh, let, let's start off by give us a little overview of what's gone in this past season. How was the hunter success, the pool conditions, cattail progress? Just kind of give us a, a snapshot of what's gone on the past uh, hunting year.
1: Okay. Um, so last year, it was, we had a really dry spring and summer uh, that allowed us to make a lot of progress on, on cattails out here. We, uh, we burnt over 3,000 acres and, and had almost 2,000 acres of uh, cattail control that we used the disc to control. And then we sprayed an additional uh, almost 700, 800 acres uh, aerial sprayed. So we, we put a pretty good dent in the cattails last year. And uh, going into the season, it looked like we were going to have just a horrible season and didn't look like we were going to have water. And I think I discussed right before teal season last on this last year, about our, our poor conditions and going, getting ready for teal season. And then all of a sudden uh, Labor Day weekend, it just, we, we flooded and, and got water and it was night and day difference, the amount of birds that we had. So um, that kind of wet conditions continued through the spring. And I think you could talk to, Anybody in the state of Kansas, any public lands manager that deals with waterfowl, and probably uh, in the and kind of the Midwest, and Central United States, kind of fought the same battle. We had a lot of water, and uh, our early season was was phenomenal here. Uh, early, you know, October timeframe. Um, you know, we like I said, we had a lot of water, so there was a lot of area. So the birds, we had ducks here, uh, but if they got pressured off there was so much private land around us and we have the eight thousand acres of nature conservancy also that kind of acts as a refuge that held a lot of birds but it also spread them out Uh, instead of having the big concentrations where the birds had to be here at the bottoms or on the nature conservancy um, they uh, were able to to get off and and hang out in private land and uh, but still we we had time several Several times, uh, especially the first couple of weeks, we were averaging, you know, three to four ducks per hunter, uh, which is which is pretty darn good by, by anybody's standards. Um, food was good. Uh, we had some, we we're dealing with a lot of deeper water, um, and it was almost a safety issue there for a little while, because uh, we had, so, you know, have you been out here, Elliot, before? Yeah, I've,
2: I've, I have. I've probably hunted it seven, eight, nine times over the past 20 years.
1: So you know those those concrete blinds that we have out here Mm -hmm. um in some of those pools the water was getting so deep that the concrete blinds were like completely underwater so people running around on 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 mud with mud motors and stuff you know they have to be really cautious of where they were going because those blinds were completely underwater so that's how much water we got right you know right before in october and it just uh, you know, we filled up and and uh, all the pools were completely full or way over full. Um and it was kind of a nightmare out here, messed up our roads, made you know, like I said, getting around the pools, you could get pretty much anywhere you wanted to in a in a motor with a with a boat, um, a lot of deep water, uh, but then there was a lot of habitat that wasn't traditionally uh available to ducks that were that was flooded. So like I said we had a really good early season and then uh kind of like what everybody else that I talked to this this fall Uh, came around. It got really cold and we lost all of our ducks. And in fact, I could pinpoint the day, November 17th is the day the ducks left and they never came back uh, the rest of the season. So um, I don't know why we never got any numbers back at all, but they, they had two pretty severe cold fronts right back to back and they just left and they never came back in any ton of numbers.
2: So yeah, you man. were you were not completely iced over all that time either. You guys thawed out during that time, right?
1: Right, right. No, yeah, we uh, we kind of froze up a little bit, and it wasn't that thick, but we froze up for only a, a short period of time. Um, and usually after a, a freeze thaw cycle, uh, we get a lot of ducks back, especially the mallards, um, and they just never came back the rest of the season. You know, the hunter, there, there wasn't any pressure here at all you could go out there you know late season the last half a season you could go out and you might be one of only five or six people on the whole property wow. even on a, even on the weekends there wasn't hardly anybody out here 10 maybe 10 or 12 people out here on a weekend um so you it was it was nice if you did did the scouting you could find a few, a few birds that uh, were available to uh, to hunt uh but it you, you know we, like i said we just didn't have the numbers Do you have any theory?
2: Go ahead. Did you do you have any theory as to why they didn't come back in? I know that Jordan's heard me say this a bunch in Kansas. It's the best typically when the when it freezes and then thaws is Mm -hmm. when you get the biggest numbers. Do you?
1: Are you still there? Yes. Okay. Um, I sorry blanked out. I really do not know why they never came back, and I don't know if. The mallards were finding um other habitat to uh to utilize instead of being here if they kind of stayed to some of the the flowing water some of the rivers and creeks and and stuff like that um i just don't know what happened there all i know is they were they were absent from pretty much the middle of november through through the end of december uh through the rest of our our season here so you know this kind of points out the, the why we have this early see this this year was very typical of a uh an early season or, or a shallow marsh and why we have this early season I mean, we harvested a lot of ducks the majority of our ducks were harvested the, the first couple of weeks of, of season then after that it really tapered off real quick um we harvested it was more of an average year like i said Early season was good. Uh, teal season was pretty, pretty decent. Uh, on average, we harvested around ten thousand ducks a year out here, and then last, this last season we we harvested uh, fourteen thousand, a little over fourteen thousand ducks.
2: Well, we got that uh, uh, real nice cold front right there on the opening weekend, the second day of the opening weekend, and it was actually snowing. I mean, it was very unusual. I would assume uh-huh. that pushed in a bunch of birds there.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, and even before that, you know. Uh, Going into uh, opening weekend of season, we probably had close to 100,000 or more ducks out here uh, going going into that uh, opening weekend. So we had a lot of numbers here to begin with. Uh, but like I said, it was kind of an average year. If if, if we would have had any kind of a late season at all, I think uh, we would have we would have had a really it would have been a, a what I would have considered above average season. So,
2: so you have been the manager there for almost an exact year, or not quite a year? It'll be two years in June. Two years, two years. Okay. So after two years, um, how do you feel like everything's gone with the progress of the marsh and things that you wanted to get accomplished?
1: Up until this this year, it, you know, last year and in the, my first summer here, I felt like we had gotten a lot accomplished. We're going to be kind of struggling a little bit right now. Um, that rain that started in September, you know, and then we had some pretty, really big rains in October, uh, November, December, and then all, all this snow that we had, this last snow melt, we finally were getting the pools down to where we, uh, not w- where we could get to get to do any work in there, but kind of what I would, I would consider a normal level for, for this time of the year, you know, and decreasing our water levels, starting to do our drawdowns and stuff for this, both the spring migration and preparation for uh, uh, the summer spring and summer habitat work but the snow melted off the frost came out of the ground and we flooded again yeah (laughs) so we're kind of we're it seems like we take one step forward two steps back with all the moisture that we've had this year so it's it's gonna it's a little slow progress it's gonna be a month or two um behind schedule as far as being able to get in and get get much work done this this summer well, that kind of segues perfectly into the renovation
2: that you guys are trying to push through or trying to um, get off the ground. You want to talk a little bit about the renovation, um, what you guys are trying to do, why you need to do it, and and just that whole. Um, I know a lot of people in Kansas are talking about that right now.
1: Yeah. So what what happened? Uh, oh, we've been since I got on we. Uh, Myself and uh, my supervisor and, and uh, some upper-level staff within in Wildlife and Parks, uh, Public Lands Division, have been talking about what what we needed to do out here at the bottom. So we started uh, getting a list together, and uh, just everything that we see is wrong. Any kind of new equipment that we want, and this isn't uh, a lot of it. Is isn't going to be new stuff. This is going to be renovating what we got on the property, redoing some stuff that that's. Uh, no longer usable um some of this repairs have been on uh, some of the stuff we're looking at replacing or repairing has been on since the 50s and then a lot of it was put into place uh in the mid 90s during our major renovation back then so we're like i said we worked on this list and then last summer we uh we wrote a grant a Pittman robertson act grant or i'll refer to it as a pr grant from now on pittman robertson act which is the uh, Excise tax on uh, ammunition, guns, and other sporting equipment mm-hmm. that the federal government collects and then distributes out to the states based upon their uh, hunting license sales. So we put in for a six million dollar grant, and uh, we were awarded that grant. So right now we have a six million dollar grant in place. Um, part of the grant is we have to contribute; the state has to contribute twenty five percent of that grant. So uh when people ask where their money goes when they go buy a, a state duck stamp or a hunting license of the state will three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars of our state duck stamp money is going toward the bottoms that's part of our match and then a little over a million dollars of our uh, hunting license, or what we call our fee fund which is our hunting license and permit sales is going to as match for this pr grant so we turned our uh what uh, about million and a half dollars that the sportsmen have contributed through the state of kansas uh, turn that into six million dollars that we're going to use to renovate the bottoms so in addition to that ducks and has launched a campaign um to kind of fall in behind with what we already got so we have the six million dollars and we're just right now we're waiting on legislation or approval of our our annual budget in order to get that enacted but then ducks unlimited has fallen in behind with a fundraising campaign called save or bring back the bottoms that will fall in behind this and either uh, as often the case these things kind of come in over budget and uh, either they're going to fill in some of the holes that we can do with the the first round or they're, we're gonna have an additional money to do some some other work that we won't have didn't have covered in the in the first round of, of the grant so um, some of it's included uh, some of the second round the phase two we call phase one is kind of the, the fixing what's wrong out here and phase two is maybe the continuation of fixing what's wrong and then adding to we have some plans to add about 300 acres of wetlands out here um, but the main, PR grant, our $6 million grant, uh, some of the stuff, like I said, it's not going to be something where people are going to show up to the bottoms and go, oh, look at that, that's something new or whatever. A lot of it's going to be kind of behind the scenes type stuff, uh, replacing pumps, electric pumps that that, that don't work or, or surpass their life expectancy, uh, some electrical wiring for those pumps. Uh, we have two old propane pumps. Uh, the engines have been in place since the 50s. So we're, we're going to replace those, uh, you know, a lot of our gates and our concrete uh, water control st- structures that are starting to deteriorate a little bit. So we're going to have those looked at, replaced, repaired at, as needed. Um, and another big part of it is silt removal. Um, the, since the way, you know, it, we have so much silt accumulating here that that's causing the problems for us to control our water and stuff. So as the silt accumulates, uh, it blocks our, our water passage into our pumps and uh, between our gates and stuff. And then what happens is the the cattails come on. So once we get some of the silt removed in our key locations, then we'll be able to, in our pumps replaced and repaired, uh, then we'll be able to move water more efficiently and, and hopefully get the cattails better under control. So.
2: Now, I heard this, there was a video, I'm sure you're aware of the video. um, Yeah, I was in there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I think it talks about um, how long it takes now to drain the bottoms and with the new system, how much quicker you'll be able to drain it. What were those numbers? It was something ridiculous.
1: Yeah, so right now, so Pool 2 is our biggest pool. It's about 3,200 acres. Um, Right now, it takes us about three months with what we have to drain Pool 2. And that would be if the water was 18, only 18 inches deep in pool two, which right now it's 30. Uh-huh. So the pumps that we plan on uh, putting in, um, it looks like we might be able to get those drawn down reasonably uh, within about 10 to 14 days. Wow. So from so three
2: months to 14 days. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's unbelievable. You know, I mean, don't. It's not going to be where we would turn those pumps on. It's going to be completely dry, you know, in fourteen days. It, it's going to take a, probably a little bit longer, but we can get the majority of the water out in fourteen days. And if we get the water down, pool too so big. If we get the water down a little ways, you know, down to ten inches, uh, and it dries out for a week or uh, a few weeks, we could start working in the back of the pool while while the the front still has water sitting in there. So.
2: And that's the pool with the main cattail problem. and that's, I mean, last time I was there, I know it was just wall to wall catch
1: yeah uh and with advances with with spraying and actually we've got our muskrat population has come back and it's actually they're actually doing a lot of good there in pool two as well but previously it hasn't been drying in years and it it is becoming a mess um, but you know we got some of the pools that we need a lot of work into 4a and 3a are the other two pools that we haven't been able to to do a whole lot in the last couple of years so those are they're they're on the schedule so um,
2: how do muskrat benefit the pool
1: they they'll eat the cattails okay. especially uh, that's they yeah their their main diets cattails so you'll uh-huh. start seeing where they'll, they'll have eat outs and, and make little holes within those yeah. cattails and stuff uh-huh. so uh, as as that population can continue, continues to expand they'll start uh, knocking out some of the cattails and and you know they they, they like the thinner cattail stuff so they'll keep the uh, areas where we thin them out uh, they'll keep the cattails back into control because they like the young young shoots too so
2: now if someone wants to contribute towards the project how how would how would they go about doing that
1: okay so ducks unlimited it, like i said we have the six million dollar pr grant and then ducks unlimited is, is doing their their fundraising um they they kind of have two or a couple of options here uh part of it's going to be your donors deal so if you got a spare ten thousand dollars laying around uh, or more you could contribute that way and then uh there there's going to be a couple uh what they're calling shine bottoms tribute events going on and there's two that i'm aware of right now one is going to be in great bend at the what's called camp aldridge it's kind of situated uh, east of shine bottoms uh, and that will be on August fifteenth, um, and that will be a a uh, kind of a sponsor event uh, where it you know you have to sponsor in order to get in the door. And then I believe they are going to have a second event at some point in December uh, in Kansas City area. Okay. Those are Great. the those are the two that they currently have planned right now.
2: And how, how do you see the time frame for all the renovation laying out under best case scenario? What would you think the time frame would look like for all this? But
1: the best case scenario is we would have our portion that six million dollars done and over with within a three year span. Okay. Uh, Twenty, I uh, think it. Or uh, the grant I mean, we could get extensions on it, but the grant will it would expire uh, September of 2021. So we we would have that until 2021 to to get that taken care of, and then uh, that's where the the ducks unlimited money is going to fall in behind that, and that that ducks unlimited money is again is going to be matched. So uh, it's going to be that three to or 20 percent, 75 percent PR match as well. So uh, all the money, any dollar that they raise uh, that way, there'll be a three additional dollars that are that are available to spend here at the bottom. So,
2: Great. We probably should have done this at the beginning. Um, but for those people that don't know about Cheyenne Bottoms or don't know the history of it, can you give a brief overview, just kind of the size and and just a brief history of it?
1: Okay. Um so in when the PR money first became available, the the state of Kansas purchased uh land that now makes up Cheyenne Bottoms and they started purchasing it in nineteen forty-two and completed it in nineteen fifty three. 1957 sorry got a text message um <laughs> 1957 uh, so they they completed the project in 1957 and uh from there it kind of stabilized until um not a whole lot was done with the property you know they they kind of made the core property what, what we know today then in 1994 they went through a project um that kind of hit, what it is today divided into several pools uh installed some pump stations and etc and since then there hasn't been a whole lot uh done there's been some minor repairs but uh, nothing big and like i said in the mid-19 since mid-1994 or 1994 mid-90s uh you know everything has life expectancy so now it's time to to redo some of that stuff that was put into place then but uh you know, we have anywhere from 20 to 100,000 people out here every year, uh, duck hunter numbers, average uh, somewhere around, um, let's see here real quick. Probably we have about 4,000 or so duck hunters out here every year annually, that give or take depends on the quality of the, the year. Um, there's other opportunities out here as well to, to hunt uh, up on game bird hunting is pretty popular. Uh, it's certainly a destination place
2: for a lot of out-of-staters, so they come year after year. And I think, I'm guessing there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, is, as far as, I mean, I haven't hunted much out of Kansas, but the vastness and the size of Cheyenne Bottoms. And when you get in, even the, some of the smaller pools, but especially Pool 2, when you get out in the middle of it, you feel like there, it's just flooded shallow waters for miles and miles and miles. I mean, it's an unbelievable feeling to get out and hunt.
1: Yeah. Um, so the size wise, we have a little over, uh, just shy of 20,000 acres and wow. about 13,000 of that is, is wetlands. So wow. that's a pretty good chunk. Yeah. Like you're saying, that's a pretty good chunk of property, uh, especially wetlands. It is the, the largest interior wetland in the United States. Um, you know, our pool size range from anywhere from 672 acres to like I said, pool two is a little over thirty-two hundred acres in, in one shop. So,
2: if you like the feeling of vastness, there's nothing like it. Nothing like. Yeah, it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what do what do you have going on as far as plans for planting crops this upcoming season? How much planting are you going to be doing, and what type of um, vegetation are you going to focus on?
1: Okay, um, we got this year. Uh, Aside from that PR grant stuff, we also got some money to uh, purchase some new equipment. So we got a brand new tractor and a brand new one of a kind, the only one like it ever made in the world, disc uh, that we're getting. We're really antsy to get started on, but like I said, we're kind of behind the curve on uh, water removal or dewatering our pools, just because you know every time we get it down a little bit, we get like we get one or two inches of rain and and with the ground so saturated already, everything runs off. So we're we're kind of behind the curve on that. Um, so we're hopeful we could still get in to some of these pools and start planting millet, um, which gives us a longer longer time frame. Is probably the Japanese millet is probably what we're going to uh, the only crop we're going to be able to put in this year, as far as in the in the wetland itself. Yeah. Yeah, I'll It's a fantastic um, crop but on last year yeah, yeah. yeah we have we've had good luck and we you know it gives us a, a large window we could plant it from June till about the middle of July or but maybe the 20th of July the latest so that'll give us a pretty good window opportunity to get some some crops planted out I had plans to uh plant some other stuff looking at planting some uh, milo or something along those milo or possibly corn probably milo but uh it's not looking like we're going to have that opportunity just because I don't think we're going to be able to get in and get anything, um, prepared for that to happen, but I could be wrong. We could turn out to be re- rather dry and, and, uh, the rest of the, the spring and, and maybe get things accomplished a little bit quicker than I thought. How many people do you,
0: on how do you guys have on your crew out there?
1: There's three of us full-time employees and then we have an additional usually two uh temporaries that we hire over the summer
0: so do you have any outsourcing to farmers do you guys run all the tractors and equipment yourself
1: we do outsource some of our our farming but that's all of our upland stuff so any of our the, the wheat and milo and there's a couple corn fields and stuff on, on the property that that's that's on the upland stuff not in the wetland the, the, anything that happens in the wetland we do ourselves because it's too much of a risk for a farmer to do uh, plant anything in the wetland because of you know we don't have enough control over the water where there's a pretty good chance it's going to flow
2: and last time you were on you mentioned that you thought that smart weed was by far or the best um, crop Is can that ever be planted
1: it probably could be yeah but uh with what what we've got and what we've we're starting to figure out uh we don't have to worry about planting it the, the seed source is there we just have to uh, uh prepare it properly in order to get it so that's kind of the timing of our drawdowns uh, but the main thing that i've noticed is after we plant millet say we'll plant millet this year and then next year we'll come back and where we're planting the millet is a smartweed same way as last year where we had all our, our millet planted last year there's a pretty good chance that, that it's going to come back up almost a solid smartweed this year and that and that also keeps out the cattails so yeah
2: um, i don't know if you guys can hear it but there's people shooting clays in the background so if you hear repetitive gunfire <laughs> there's Clay's being shot right down below me. I don't know if you guys can can hear that or not. But, um, one topic I'm, I'm really curious to go into is in Kansas, I believe it was two, right around the time you were hired, they outlawed guiding on public land. Um, can you uh-huh. speak to that as to why that decision was made? And um, I know some people are, still believe that it's taking place. Just kind of talk on that topic a little bit.
1: Okay, so the guiding on public ground, it's just not guiding that, that was, was outlawed. It's no commercial use. So uh, you, cannot make, you cannot use public ground for monetary gain. Um, and there, you know, there hasn't been to my knowledge on the property, any guides that have been um, busted uh, for guiding on, on the property there's a few people that we've been suspicious of of guiding on the property uh it's it's from what i understand like,
0: looks like uh, he's cut out there I,
1: from what i've seen i don't notice it like i did back when it was happening when it was happening it was rather hectic it was it was aggravating as a public land hunter, you were out there hunting and it was just constant boat traffic from the uh, from the, the boat ramp to then dumping hunters off and, and around and rally up ducks to try to stir up ducks for the clients. Yeah. It was, you know, there was a lot of intimidation going on from the guides, the outfitters, trying to reserve their quote, their spot, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it was put in for the, definitely for the right reasons. And I think it, it has helped um what goes on at um, our public marshes
2: and i don't know if you're willing to comment on this or not but there's a lot licensed and regulated do you have any thoughts on that topic
1: what was that you could uh, i
2: there's a, a lot of people that would like to see guides in kansas um, have to be licensed and, and, licensed and regulated and taxed. and taxed do you have any comments on that
1: Right, um, I, I don't know how much I want to really comment on that, but there's a lot of guides themselves that want want the regulation in place uh, to kind of maybe control some of the, uh, the the newcomers or some of the uh, maybe I don't know if I want how I want to say that, but some of the uh, fly, fly by nighters could put dollar. Uh, if it's a little bit regulated, uh, the guides could well, theoretically would be a little bit more reputable but the other running, than that
2: the run and gun college kids is you your time yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> you topic. know because i mean it, 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 it you know i don't blame people trying to make make some money and stuff off, off the resource but uh, uh some of it gets a little bit ridiculous and uh but yeah there is there's been some some push to, to try to regulate some of the, the guides and outfitters and some of it like i said a lot of it is is there a push from themselves to, to do it so
2: Well, this topic I know um, is something we talked about before. What we talked about the last time you were on was making more pools primitive. But um, I'd like to talk uh, something that's similar to that. I know there's a lot of people um, on Facebook and the forums that um, have real vocal voices about limiting uh, mud motors on the complex. And I I know I didn't actually realize this um, until recently that that and I'm not sure what a year was that at some point they outlawed oh the boats with the big airboats boats. airboats yeah they outlawed airboats and people would some people would love to see like a 15 horsepower limit on mud motors and is there any chance anything like that would ever take place
1: okay so what's happening right now uh, on the bottoms that kind of pushed to for restrictions that was the same thing that went through back when they outlawed the uh banned the uh the airboats on the property uh, um Airboats can get around a lot better than any of the mud boaters really can. Uh, But there was the same pushback. There was, you know, a lot of disturbance, loud disturbance, uh, constant people running around throughout the marsh uh, all the time. And that's, to some extent, what's going on now, especially with the surface drives. It seems like uh, uh, those are are, uh, the ones that are, you know, they're loud. Uh, They go fast and go... a lot of places in the marsh now, I will say there's a lot of places out there that uh, a mud motor will never get to and a lot of places that 99% of people will never walk to. Um, but there's still some areas that that not be accessed without a substantial amount of work. Um, my thought and my feeling on it, on the whole mud motor deal, waterfowl, Hunting is regulated pretty strictly. Uh, they the waterfowl regulations are pretty confusing. Um, they change every year. You know how many ducks, how many pintail can I shoot this year? When is the split? If I'm on this side of the highway, you know when? When's the season? I don't really want to complicate the regulations any more than what they already are. I'm kind of one of those. I I like to let people, and I, you know I grew up hunting public ground too. Go just go out and hunt, you know, instead of having to worry about it. And I think some of the regulations as confusing regulations, make it to where people are afraid to come out to our public land and hunt because they think they're going to be breaking the law. And that's not what I want to happen. You know, it's, it, you know, I understand the people that are serious duck hunters, they're going to know the regulations inside and out. Uh, they're going to pay attention to that type of stuff, but you know, there's the common people that, uh, maybe just want to go out and duck hunt once or twice a year. Um, and they're still wanting to, uh, they still buy the state duck stamp that we use. Oh, it looks and, like you and, and, Am I still there?
0: Yep. You're back.
1: Okay. So I, I'm, uh, just trying to give everybody a fair shake as to, to access the property and not feel like they're going to be breaking a law, uh, that that's in place just because, you know, some people want to have quite, um, uh, enjoyment of the of the uh the marsh itself so i I'm, i have mixed total mixed opinions of of the uh the mud motor deal like i said i i get where it's coming from i i get the the validity behind having a, a ban or a, a restriction on mud motor motors or or other equipment but i think right now it's it's to the point where i I feel like uh, what we have in place works and there's other ways that I could control boat access. Um, there's probably going to be, you know, a pool every year that we're going to be targeting for cattail control. Um, so there'll be a pool where I'm going to keep the water level lower to where, you know, in the spring I could pump it out a lot quicker and uh, get get to work on the cattails. So you know, having it, you know, six inches deep or so is going to limit boat access in there. So um like i said there's other ways that we could do without forced restrictions or regulations on uh, on the mud motors so
2: yeah well thank you for talking about that i know that's something that i'm sure you probably get calls and oh. contact about the stuff all the time
1: uh yeah if i it, yeah if, of all the topics that i talk about or people ask me about that is one of them and you know people anywhere from people that are worried they're they're getting ready to buy a new boat that they're worried that uh, I am going to re- restrict it, and they're not going to be able to use it and stuff. But like I said, right now, I just feel like, and I have it from, from a hunter's perspective, I've met, you know, I've been hunting out for years, but as a manager's perspective, I like to get a few more seasons under my belt before I start making a decision as to if that's something that's actually needed. Like I said, later in the season here, there, there wasn't anybody out here there. Like I said, there was days literally where there was maybe one or two boats out here on the whole property uh, so that wasn't causing it a disturbance to where it was limiting the use by ducks. So it seems like it, it's that early season uh, October time frame before other states open up and before other portions of the state open up itself for uh, for duck hunting. That that kind of seems to to have a bigger effect on it than it does later in the season when when everybody else is out hunting and not utilizing giant bottoms as much.
2: Yeah, I can tell you the times I've been out there, I hear a lot of complaints that people have about overcrowded and all these issues. Every time I've been out there, we've had no problems at all finding open space to be off by ourselves and shoot some ducks. So I, I certainly don't understand what a lot of the criticisms are from my personal experience.
1: Yeah, um, and you know, one thing that was playing out and I kept a close eye on it. Uh, Arkansas was looking at banning uh, surface drives on public ground and uh, i kept a close eye on on what was happening down there uh to see if there was if there was any warrant and they ended up not doing it um so you know if if it comes down to it you know we'll we'll, we'll it's always something that's always going to be considered in the future if it becomes a huge problem where i think it's really severely limiting uh hunter success and uh duck use of the of the property, so.
2: Now are those type of regulations um, if you're going to make a change like that, is that something that you can independently do or do you have to bring it before someone else or how, how does that hire yeah,
1: you? it's definitely going to have to go up the chain of command I, I It would be something that uh myself uh and probably the local law enforcement local game warden would have to uh, we would have to agree upon something and then propose that on up to our chain of command and possibly probably the commission as well so
2: now, when, when you say the commission, um, can you give a little more detail on, on who you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so like any, like most uh, agencies, we have a, a Wildlife and Parks Commission uh, a, a cabinet of appointed uh, members that uh, meet uh, every few, at least every couple months uh, to set our set regulations. So they kind of, we propose the regulations, we make staff recommendations, and they, they are the ones that actually uh, approve those regulations. It's the so same. They, way. they set the
2: limits and they set the the dates of when when the different zones are going to be open and those, and those
0: all all regulations.
1: Yes. So pretty much any any regulations that we have that that the uh, or most of our regulations they have to approve. So it's so uh, you know again it's it's kind of like a we we don't want to have agency have complete control. You know it allows some outside input and allows the public to input. Uh, have their comment to the commissioners and have some input in, in everything as well.
2: Um, and for those of you that are more curious about this topic, I'll, if you go over to Facebook, the video about the bottoms and the renovation um, there. Uh, but Jordan, I think that's all, all the questions. I I know we did the, um, the, um, the questions last time. I don't know if that's something I well, want to do with- <clears throat>
0: you know i think i I can throw in a couple questions here before we wrap it up um so how often do you get out to hunt on the bottoms each year
1: uh it varies a little bit uh i i during teal season it was probably three or four times a week at least and then uh yeah i I love teal hunt um and then during regular duck season early season i went out quite a bit and then uh i kind of tapered off there at the end i started uh, i had some other hunts some elk hunts and stuff like that going on so i didn't get out later in the season as much as i wanted to but uh i i i go out quite a bit so you know at least two or three times a week is what i'd say on average i'm out here
0: cool and uh can you uh maybe tell us about your most memorable hunt out at the bottoms
1: oh um yeah, that would have been in 3A, and I was actually living in Texas at the time, and there were some whooping cranes staying in, in 3A, and it was closed for like two weeks, so the 3A was just, just covered with, with ducks and geese, and uh, my dad, my brother, and I finally had opened up, so we called, kept calling the office, and whoever, I think it was the past manager, I think he finally, he was said a few twist words to us, and he said, yes, it's open. Uh, he was tired of getting those phone calls, but we went in there the next morning. And uh, the three of us rode out there in the 3 a 3A. It was primitive at the time, too. Um, and we shot each shot a limit of specs. We each shot a Canada and we each shot a limit of mallards and pintails. So uh, that was a pretty, pretty, pretty nice morning out, out, out on here. But I've had so many of them out here, you know, uh, I, I just, you know, it's hard to pick just one. But that, that one stands out in my mind
0: awesome that's a that'd that be a hard hunt to beat for sure
1: <laughs> yeah it, even i mean even on private ground i don't think you know it'd be a hard one to to top it on private ground as well so
0: yeah and then um i guess the last question is can you uh give us the gps location of your f- f- favorite spot to hunt out there at the bottom <laughs> Oh, I think he, he, uh, he hung up the phone on that one. <laughs>
2: yeah, he was done. It's like, all right, no more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, that's actually where we're going to wrap it up anyway. And that was all a joke. He didn't actually hang up the phone, but it looks like we're having some connection issues. But uh,
1: Yep, we got gotcha.
0: you. Oh, I can't hear him. Can you hear him?
1: In and out there
2: for oh, a
0: there we go. He's back. Okay. Yeah, we well.
2: thought – Jordan asked you for GPS coordinates, your favorite spot. We thought you hung up the phone.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my favorite spot varies. You know, I get that question. That's one of my my second most question. If I were – if, uh, you know, if I was your friend, where would you tell me to go hunt and stuff like that? And it varies so much. You know, uh, my thinking is if I see ducks more than two days in a row at a spot, that's when I decide I'm going to go hunt them. You know, uh, and that's really – I don't have a – particular spot i have a couple spots that traditionally years i've had good luck at but i like to be mobile and uh, look around and like i said if i see ducks two days in a row and the weather conditions right i'm going to go there in the next morning and try to try to get them taken care of so
0: awesome all right well i think that about wraps it up for us um really appreciate you coming on jason and and talking about the bottoms and everything you guys got going on there so any last words elliot
2: Nope, just always love you uh, coming on the uh, podcast. And we, we would really appreciate having you back on in the fall to give a little update of what's going on again.
1: Yeah, last year, I think the, the timing was right, uh, right before teal season, I think it was, was a good time. So we could kind of plan on doing that again. And, and I'll have a little bit, hopefully, we'll have some, some progress made on our grant and we could start discussing that, that a little bit more done and what we're a little bit more defended plans. So perfect.
0: Alrighty. Well, I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, and Jason Wagner from Sand Battams, and we'll see you guys next time.